So uh, we've been in this series called Promises in the Desert. We're going to continue this morning. We've been in Numbers chapter 11. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, your electronic devices, you can turn with me or you can either turn to, click to. Uh, Numbers chapter 11, verse 18, actually, if you want to know, is where we're going to uh, start reading this morning. As we pick the story up, the children of Israel have been in the desert for about two years. God is trying to bring the children of Israel from the, the people of Pharaoh to the people of God, uh, the people of slavery to uh, the people of a promise. And so we've been looking at this issue of the desert, and we're looking at today the promise of growth when you're in the desert. And so we've been looking at this issue of the desert, an emotional desert, a spiritual desert, and we've defined that out, just a biblical definition in case this is your first time with us uh, in this series, is this, is that a desert is a place where your strength is dried up. That's what Numbers chapter 11, verse 6 says, that, the, that your desert, my de desert is that place where it's, it's that space in your life where it's hard to breathe, uh, to where you just feel like, I, I'm just sick of this. I'm sick of dealing with the same thing over and over. I just don't know if I can do this any longer. And so I would tell you this about the desert. The desert, the desert is not optional to us. And it's just so interesting to me that, that God told Moses, I want you to take my children out from under Pharaoh, from, from, from out from under slavery uh, to freedom in, into, the, into the promised land. And God said nothing about that space in between. God said nothing about the desert. And so the desert, just so we're tracking, the desert in the Christian life, the desert is not optional to us. What is optional to us, one, how long we spend in the desert, if we get out of the desert, or how we respond to the desert. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but, uh, but Karen and I, we, we love to travel. Uh, it doesn't matter if it's road trips. It doesn't matter uh, if it's mission trips or vacation. It doesn't matter to us. We, we, we just love to travel. Fact is, I, I even love to fly. Now, what I mean by that is I love to fly once I'm in my, my seat and I've got my, my luggage stowed and, and I've got my things laid out and I'm ready to go. Because you know about flying, I mean, even though you're excited because of the destination to where you're headed, to where you're going, there's some things about flying that I absolutely don't like. I mean, I, I, I don't like TSA and I don't like going through that whole hassle and lines and people and unhappy people, all the other stuff. But let me tell you the thing that I hate the most about flying. I hate the boarding gate. I, I, I mean, I hate, that whole, I hate that whole process. And we all know if you've flown, uh, you all know that once they start pre-boards, you've got about 20 minutes before you're ever really going to take off or you're really going to get on the plane. And why is it when they start the pre-boards, when they just announce that, we all just gather up and we huddle around the door? And I mean, it's just like jockeying for position about getting close to the door. And I get the pre-boards. I mean, you know, first off, it's going to be first class. That's like never me. And so, you know, I don't get to go with that crowd. And then there's like the, the gold members or the 75,000 mile members or VIP. Or we start pre-boards with people that need assistance, people traveling with children. And I just think it's a cool deal. Uh, that all of the airlines honor our military, and so we let military board first to, to honor them of their service and all of this stuff. So I, I, I'm with that. I, I like that. But the part I hate is like general boarding. And you know how we have numbers. And so then all of a sudden they'll say, you know what, we've all crowded around. And, and so now then group number one gets to go. And so if you're group number one, when I'm group number one, I hate it, I hate it, I hate it. Because what you're having to do is you're having to work your way through all the number two, the number three, and the number four people, right? Because they're in the line. And so you're excused.
Excuse me, coming through, coming through, and it's like inch by inch, right? And sometimes I get so frustrated. He says, what number are you? And they're like, number four, I thought so. I'm number one. Let me through. And so, so I understand, we understand why we do that, right? Because really and truly what we're jockeying for is overhead bin space. Because now with the changes in the airline, if you check your luggage and it goes into the plane, they're going to charge you like $1,000 for that. And then and it's like you'll never see your luggage ever again. And even if they lose your luggage, all they give you is like 50 bucks, uh, you know, so you can go out and buy some more clothes. Woo-hoo. And so, so I hate the process, even though I really like the destination. Even though I cannot wait to get to the destination. And see, what spiritual journey... When we, when we accept Christ, when we start out on a spiritual journey, the scriptures tell us this. In fact, as Paul tells us this over and over in Ephesians, that you were predestined to become in the likeness of Jesus Christ. To where we were predestined to become followers of Christ, to mature in him. But if we're honest, what we don't like, we don't like the process, the desert that we have to go through. To become like Christ. I'm telling you. Desert experiences in your life. Desert experiences in my life. Are a gateway. To a deeper experience with Jesus Christ. If you respond appropriately. The desert not optional for any of us. How we respond to God in that time. How we respond to scripture. How we respond to Him. I'm just telling you. Desert experiences in your life and my life. Is a gateway to a deeper experience with Christ. Hey, we, we talk a lot in church about the consequences of disobeying God. And I don't think sometimes we talk near enough about the consequences of obeying God. And the consequences of following God. Especially when we're in those desert times. So this morning I'm going to give you three principles. Three schools that we go through. That we go to when we're in the desert. And we know this. If we've been in school at, in any amount of time, we know that school is to prepare us for the future. It is to give us gifts, uh, give us abilities and talents and so that we can learn some things, so we can be successful in a career, a profession, or in, in, in a job. And so I want to give you three things, three schools that we go. It's a requirement. It's a requirement that we go to these schools, and it's a requirement that if we want to get out of the desert, it's the presence of God and it's obedience, and we'll walk through these three schools and we'll pass these three schools. But we have to understand them. The first school that the children of Israel went through as they were becoming the people of God, the people of a promise, is first, we go to identity school. In other words, we go to identity school to where you, listen, you have got to know who you are in Christ. Paul, over and over and over in the book of Ephesians, say, you've got to know who you are in Christ. If you don't know who you are in Christ, you're going to revert back to the old habits. You're going to revert back to the old addictions. You're going to revert back to the old way of life that you have got to know who you are in Christ. And the same was true with the children of Israel. They start out on this journey and God is preparing them. God is preparing them from the promised land. God is preparing them for that, lot, that space in their life, that time in their life that they've always dreamed of. But God is saying, you know what? You're not ready yet. And as a result of that, you've got to know. I mean, you've got to know who you are in Christ. For them, you've got you to know who you are. See, the danger of the desert is this. Is that when we begin to define ourselves not by who we are, or who we're becoming, 
but what we are no longer. See, that's the danger. When you don't know who you are in Christ, when you don't know who you are in God, and you go through those desert experiences, you will not define yourself. You'll define, you'll find, in other words, this, you'll define your identity in your circumstances, in your space in life. You'll find your identity maybe in your past. And it's, it's always dangerous for you. In other words, what happens when people go through a desert experience and they don't know who they are in Christ? Like the children of Israel, they define themselves out of who they are no longer. That's why people in the desert will say things like, I'm no longer married. I'm no longer engaged. I'm no longer dating. I'm no longer a teacher. I'm no longer a, an accountant. I'm no, no longer, I, I am no longer healthy. When you're in the desert, you start defining yourself out by who you are no longer because that's what you found your identity in. I, I no longer have parents. I no longer have a mom. I no longer have a dad. The, a very close friend of mine, um, his, his mom and then his dad passed away uh, before my dad passed away. He's a very close friend, and so I walked with him through that journey. Even though I'd never gone through that journey when he went through it, I walked with him through that journey. I'll never forget one of the things he, he told me. We're, we were having breakfast, and he just looked at me. He says, you know what? I'm just getting... I'm getting so frustrated. I know what people mean. But he said, I'm just getting so frustrated when people say, sorry about the loss of your dad. I didn't lose my dad. I know exactly where my dad is. I, I still have a dad. I still have a father. And I know exactly where he is. See, that's so healthy that when you're able to go through those desert experiences that you no longer define yourself who you are no longer, but you define yourself out about who you're becoming. And so this journey for the people of Israel, they're starting on this journey and they're an unruly mob of people and they're rebellious. And so and they're not doing very well in this transformation that God wants to happen in their life. So when they run out of water, they, they like complain. And they complain about Moses and they complain about God. And they say, God, what you're providing for us, not enough. And they're defining themselves out by who they are no longer. Oh, how we remember the onions, the leeks, the garlics, and the food that costs like nothing. And so they're stuck in their past and they find their identity in their past. And then when they run out of food, they like have this meltdown. Even though God's providing manna for them, they have this meltdown. And they begin questioning. Listen, they question the motives and the leadership of Moses. And they question the provisions of God because they're defining themselves out about who they are no longer. Listen, let me tell you something this morning. This story has a sad ending. I mean, this is a sad part of this journey, but it's so instructive for us. And so I, I just pray that we get this morning what we're supposed to get out of this text because this, this desert space, this desert place in our life, is the place that many times we hate the most, but where God does some of his best work if we let him. 
It's that place that we hate the most, that we think stinks, that we don't know if we can do it. But it's the place, I'm telling you, it's the place where God does some of his best, best work. When I'm boarding a plane and I'm headed on vacation, it's a place that we're dying to go. That I have a choice in the boarding gate. I can get frustrated with the process and I can bail. And I said, you know what? I've had it. I'm not even getting on that plane. I'm going to go get in my car. I'm going to go home. I will never make it to my destination. And the same is true spiritually. A lot of times it's the process that we don't like. And so Moses is like having this conversation with God. Moses, the people are complaining to Moses. And so Moses praises God. Numbers chapter 11, verse 18, as we just pick up this prayer. And so, and so God tells Moses this. He said, Moses, here's what I need you to say to the people. Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. So that meant, that meant a, a, a ceremonial washing, cleansing to get ready for what God's going to do as part of worship. So anyway, so he says, and he says, and, and then tell them, you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the hearing of the Lord, saying, who will give us meat to eat? For it was better for us in Egypt. Therefore, the Lord will give you meat and you shall eat. Someone is not happy here, right? Someone is mad. In fact, it's just, this is just for free, just real quickly. Be careful. Be careful what you pray for. Be careful what you force in life. These people wanted meat at all cost. At all cost. They ignored biblical guidelines. They, they ignored the word of the, God, uh, of the Lord. They ignored a leader. And they went ahead and did it. And God got to the point, said, fine. You want meat? You can have meat. You can have meat. Verse 19. You shall eat meat. You shall not eat just one day or two days or five days or ten days or twenty days. But a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and become loathsome to you. Because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and you have wept before him saying, why did we come out of Egypt? In other words, you know what they're doing? They're rejecting the Lord. They are rejecting God. You know what they're saying? God, your provisions are not enough for us. It is not enough. We, we need more. You know the reason that he says the food, the manna, the, the miracle that he was doing for them became loathsome to them? You know the reason that happened? Because they first, the root issue is they rejected God. And when they rejected God, they rejected everything that God gave them. The fact is they couldn't even see it as a blessing. See, their, their identity was not found in God. Their identity was not found in becoming a people of promise, the people of the promised land. Their identity was not found in their, their identity was found in their circumstances and their situations. That's why Paul said over and over in Ephesians, as New Testament believers, you better know who you are in Christ. Because if you don't know who you are in Christ, when you hit the desert, you're going to revert back to an old way of living. Whether it's gossip, whether it's slander, whether it's an addiction, whether it's something that you do it, you're going to revert back. You're going to revert back to those survival skills that got you into the desert. And so you better know who you are in Christ. So the first school that we have to pass, we have to pass identity school. The second school that we have to pass is really uncomfortable for us, but it's a discipline school. The second school that you and I have to walk through and pass is this issue of discipline because this crime is much deeper than just complaining about food. I mean, it's cosmic treason. I mean, they're saying, God, whatever you're providing for us is not enough. I mean, God, we need more. And so the idea is after two years, they've been in the desert and they're saying, God, we would be better off without you. 
It would have been better off if we hadn't have been obedient. It would have been better off if we hadn't followed you. You just brought us out here to die. And so we pick up the story, verse 21, or the conversation with God and Moses. And so, but Moses, so Moses said back to the Lord, Moses said, the people among whom I am number 600,000 on foot, and God, you have said, I will give them meat that they may eat a whole month? Shall flocks and herds be slaughtered for them and be enough for them? Or shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them and be enough for them? And the Lord said to Moses, is the, is the Lord's hand shortened now? now? Okay, so in my Bible, this like is underlined, highlighted, asterisked, because there are consequences, there are blessings for obeying God. So watch what he says. Now, Moses, you shall see. You shall see whether my word will come true for you or not. It's in the desert that his word, when we respond properly, becomes alive to us. Moses is saying, Lord, I know you want to give them meat to eat, but come on. If I, if I slaughtered and barbecued every lamb and goat that we have with us, if I, like, if I, if I send a, a fishing expedition to the Mediterranean Sea and they, and they come back, I couldn't even feed 600,000 people for a week, let alone a month. Are you serious? And God's response is like, Moses, do you think I'm incapable of this? Do you, Moses, do you think I'm incapable of fulfilling my word in the desert for you? Do you... Do you think I cannot do this? Remember, God just told him he's going to provide meat. He didn't tell him how. And next, what we see in the Exodus story is, is like there's this wind that begins to blow. And, there's like, and it becomes like the mother of all quail migrations. And I mean, quail are like so thick that they're, that they're, that they're hovering off the ground, like three feet off the ground. People could just snatch them right out of the air. We pick up the story, verse 31, and... And so watch this. So now they're off the manna diet. And verse 31, then a wind from the Lord sprang up and it brought quail from the sea and let them fall beside the camp. Look, look how thick this is. About a day's journey on this side and a day's journey on the other side around the camp and about two cubics, two, two cubics is about three feet, two cubics above the ground. And the people rose all that day and all that night and all the next day and gathered the quail. Those who gathered less gathered 10 homers. A homer was like this basket. is a bit, little bit larger than a bushel basket. And so 10 homers, just for us to have a perspective this morning is, 10 homers of quail would fill up, fill up the bed of a pickup truck. It's a lot of meat. Okay. And they spread them out so they probably would dry them. They spread, spread them out from themselves all around the camp. While the meat was yet between their teeth, before it was consumed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people. And the Lord struck down the people with a very great plague. In other words, some people died. Does that disturb you that that's in your Bible? This, this is a, listen, this is a disturbing Bible story to deal with, but it is a great story for you to tell your children at dinner time. <laughs> Kids, before you, claim, uh, before you complain about the food, Daddy has a little Bible story he would love to read for you. 
some people complained about their food and God killed them. <laughs> now, eat your broccoli. Just thought you'd want to know. <laughs> Karen and I... Uh, Karen and I, a lot of times Karen asks me before I preach, she says, hey, what you preaching about? And I tell her, then it always leads in, hey, what kind of humor are you using? And uh, she actually, she actually voted no on that. Uh, so, you, you understand I'm joking, right? Okay. Some of you will use that in family devotionals. So, so, uh, so anyway, we're, so we're, we're in godly discipline. So this is... <laughs> okay, so let's move on. Okay, so godly discipline. So here's the uncomfortable that we need to talk about, about this story. Is this issue of godly discipline. And biblical, just so, we're, just so we understand, godly discipline. God inflicts pain on us for redemptive purposes. That's, that's just... That's godly discipline. It, it, it is pain that is not to ruin something, but it's pain to rescue something. See, God was trying to rescue something in their life. The desert of our life, God is trying to perfect us. God is trying to rescue something in our life. So, so we, expect, we expect good parents, right? We expect good parents to provide timely and appropriate discipline to their children. Uh, I never forget when, when Karen and I were, were raising kids and they were young and we were living in our first home in Houston, Texas, and, and Brittany was four, Amanda was about three, and so we had some friends that lived across the street and they just had great Texas name, uh, names. It was Missy and Razor, <laughs> and, and he had a brother named Cotton, and so, and so Razor was like his given name. And so we had Missy and Razor lived across the street. They had two girls. We had two girls. Uh, the ages of their girls about the same ages of our girls. And so it was just we just meshed. And so they were they were usually at our house for dinner. We were at their house. I mean, we're like ants going back across the street. The fact is, it was one of those relationships to where you got to the place where you, you never even knocked anymore when you went to each other's house. You just kind of swung open the front doors. Hey, and uh, and that was just okay with us. And so one night. Uh, Razor says, hey, Charlie, instead of us eating at your house or our house, let's go to dinner. Let's, let's go out to eat. And so we, we, we did that. And so we went to eat uh, Chinese food. And so I never, will for, I never will forget that night. You see, Missy and Razor, they didn't believe in discipline. Uh, they, they thought kids would just kind of, I guess, grow up on their own. I don't know. And so they didn't believe in any discipline. And so we went and ate at this Chinese restaurant. And their two daughters never stayed seated the whole time, the whole meal. Fact is, they just kind of wandered around while they were waiting for our food to come. Fact is, the four-year-old, I, I looked over, she walked up to a table, said hi to a man, and then reached up on the plate, got something off of his plate, and ate off of his plate. And so the waitress kept bringing, you know, the kids back and trying to be nice and everything else. And then into the meal, all of a sudden, here comes the manager, and the manager has their oldest daughter by the hand. And so he, he's walking her with his hand. He comes up to our table and says, hey, listen, we, we've tried to be accommodating to you guys, so we're going to give you two options. One is if you can guarantee that you can keep your kids uh, in the table, you can stay because we just found your daughter in the kitchen, and now it's become a liability. And now we're worried she's going to get hurt. And so, um, so you're going to have to keep them at the table, 
or we'd be more than happy to like box up your food right now and send you on your way. And so uh, Missy and Razor opted for, give us a box, we're leaving, we're gone. And so we ended up back at our house. And so we witnessed that. I never forget watching my kids and their, their eyes were like this. And I'm like, don't you even think about it. I, I will apply some godly discipline right now, right here. Don't you even think about it. So we respect parents to bring timely and appropriate discipline to their children. And, and, that, and that discipline doesn't contradict their love for their child. fact is, it's an expression of their love for their child because they want the best for their see, see, parents understand, godly parents understand that guess what? Ultimately, we're not raising children, we're raising adults. Self-centered children don't grow up to make great adults. Fact is, self-centered children, the longer they go in life, become more and more self-centered. And so the wise parent understands that, guess what? I'm not raising children, I'm raising an adult. And part of my job is to help my kids understand the thoughts, the feelings, the emotions of other people around them. We, a good employer, a good supervisor, a good manager, when he hires someone new into the company or she hires someone new into the company, and that individual has a lot of, is bright and has a lot of potential, a lot of promise, but con consistently showing up late and missing deadlines and not f following through on job assignments, then a good manager and a good supervisor will call that employee in and have a conversation say, we need to have a talk. And that you, you, you're bright and you've got a lot of potential. But there's some attitudes, there's some actions that have to go if you want to have a future with this company. And so we wouldn't look at that as a terrible boss. We would look at that as a great boss that cares about that individual and cares about the future of that individual, even though you have to have a hard conversation, even though you have to have an awkward conversation. And, and we respect good managers and good coaches and, and good parents for bringing timely, appropriate discipline. Why wouldn't we respect God for bringing appropriate and timely discipline? What if God was trying, and he was, what if God was trying to rescue something in them? Numbers chapter 11, they get quail, and some people, not all, die in the desert. That would, much be, that would be much better than all of them dying in the desert. So God's trying to rescue something. Numbers chapter 13, God tells them they send out spies into the promised land to give a report of the land and the people that live there. And, they, and, and the spies come back, and they give a great report on the land. And said, it's just as God said, it's a land flowing with milk and honey, and uh, it's just a wonderful land. I mean, it's that, it's that space that we dreamed of. It's our destination. It's what God has for us. Uh, but the problem is, is that there's giants in the land. And we're like grasshoppers to them. And there were only two in that group that said, Joshua and Caleb, that said, we can take the land. God said it. We should believe it. We can take the land. The rest of the spies that came out, part of the rebellious group, because there's some people that they find their identity in, in a rebellious group. But the rebellious group said, we can't take the land. And we need to turn around and go back because we'll die. Here's the interesting. God said, that's it. God said, that's it. And for two years, for two years in the desert, God had been asking the same question over and over and over. Will you trust me? When you run out of water in the desert, will you trust me? When you, when you run out of food in the desert, will you trust me? When, when, you, when you need meat to eat and when you don't think my provisions are enough for you in the desert, will you trust me? When, when Pharaoh's army is attacking you and other people are attacking you, 
Will you will you trust me when you see giants in your promised land, giants in 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 your future? Will you trust me? And over and over and over, this rebellious group of people kept saying, no, we will not. No, we will not. No, we will not. In the desert, the last school that you have to go through is a trust school, that we go to trust school in the desert. And they're, they're leaving out of Egypt, and they're a rebellious group of, of, of God followers. And I'm telling you, trust is the glue that holds every relationship together. If trust is gone in a relationship, the relationship is gone. And these, these people were a rebellious group of people. And guess what? They weren't going to trust God. They weren't going to trust Moses. They weren't going to trust Joshua. They weren't going to trust Caleb. They were only going to trust their rebellious group. And the quail story this is crazy. The quail story happens when they're, they're at the boarding gate of the promised land. All the, they're at the border. They are at the border of the promised land. The desert is not optional for you. The desert is not optional for me. How long we spend in the desert, if we ever get out, is optional. And they decide, you know what? Can't do it. Can't do it. And the Lord finally said, that's it. I don't know if I can rescue all of you. And God said, turn around. And you're going to wander in the desert for 38 years, total of 40, until all the adults die off. And when they die off, Joshua and Caleb will lead you into the promised land. The desert is not optional for us. The way we respond to the desert is. Numbers chapter 11, when the manna complained, and they begin to say, if we only had meat to eat, God sent a plague, and a few died off, and it was a warning shot across their bow. God was trying, definitely trying to get their attention, and God was trying to rescue something. God's trying to rescue something of you when you're in the desert. And this chapter just closes on an ugly no. And you have to ask yourself, what, what is this here for? What are we supposed to learn from this? Maybe more importantly, what, what, do we, what do we do with this? What if, the, what if the desert is fertile ground for transformational growth? What if God does some of his best work in those spaces that we just hate the most? See, they weren't ready for the promised land. In Egypt... They had been indoctrinated in idol worship. And, and God wanted them to worship him. And God wanted them to trust him. And there were giants in their promised land. And there was idol worship in the promised land. And what God is trying to do in the desert is forge this faith of trust. And God has said, I want you to represent me in the promised land where there's idol worship going on. And I want you to trust me and I want you to only worship me. And I, I don't want you to have any other gods before me. And I, I don't want you to build a statue. And I don't want you to bow down and worship that. I don't want you to build a cow and bow down and worship a cow and say, that is me. That's insulting to me. 
And so they are not ready. See, they were only supposed to be in the desert for two years. And it was a place of transformational growth to where they were going to transform from the people of, uh, of Pharaoh to the people of God to the people uh, from slavery to a people of promise. And transformational growth is much different than incremental growth. Incremental growth is that growth that happens in those good spaces of life when the marriage is going well and the job's going well and bills are getting paid and, you're, and the kids are behaving properly and you're getting to go and, and all of that other stuff. And you come and you worship and you life journal and you, you, go, to, you go to life group and, and, and it's growth, but it's inch by inch by inch. But that incremental growth builds channels in your life so that when you're in the desert, you can trust him. See, those, it, that incremental growth prepares us so we'll say yes to him. Man, there are people in those spaces that have said it's in the desert where I learned to pray. It's in the desert where I learned to trust him. It's in the desert where God's word became true to me. That's why with Moses, if Moses in the desert, you're going to learn. You're going to learn whether you can trust me. You're going to learn whether my word is true or not. See, there's people all the time that say, you know what, that season, that desert experience that I went through in my life, that season changed me. Listen, let me tell you something. That season did not change you. Your reaction to that season changed you. Your reaction to the desert experience. That's what changes you. And it could either change you for the better or it can change you for the worse. You, you can come out of the desert better or bitter. What if? What if the desert has the ability to produce fruit, a crop in our life that we so desperately crave and desperately want. Some people will tell me, well, time heals all wounds. No, it does not. I know some people with more and more time become more bitter, angry, resentful, and they just become poisonous people to any current relationships or any future relationships. So I ask you again, what if that space that we hate the most has the possibility of producing a crop in our life that we desperately need? One of those profound prayers that you can pray in the desert. God, I don't like this space. I don't like this place. I didn't want it. I didn't ask for it. I don't even like what's happening. God, I don't even understand what's happening, but Lord, I, I will trust you. I will trust you. It's the most powerful thing that can happen in the desert. The desert is not optional for us. What is optional is how we respond to the desert. Would you bow your heads with me and close your eyes? Let me ask you this morning with your heads bowed and eyes closed. What is God saying to you as a result of this message? Maybe more importantly, how does God want you to respond to this message? It's in the desert where we, where we really learn to trust him. And maybe you'd say, you know what, Charlie, I'm, I'm in the desert now. And my prayer for you would be this, that God would meet you in the desert. And that God would meet you in the desert, you'd respond to him appropriately, and he would, re he would restore to you your joy, your laughter, your peace. And that as you open up your hands and you release your pain, 
in your hurt and your disappointment that you would leave your hands open towards him and that you would be able to receive whatever goodness that he has for you I pray that you would find him faithful in the desert may you find God at his best when things are at their worst in your life. May that be the place where you learn to pray. May that be the place where you learn to trust Him. May that be the place that His Word became real and true to you. Maybe this morning you'd say, you know what, I, I just need someone to pray for me. I'm carrying a burden. I've got a prayer request. I need someone to pray for me. We want to pray for you. We really do. This is the point in our service where we minister one to another. And so if you need prayer in any area of your life, if it's a burden you're carrying, we want to release that. We want to pray for you. It may have to do with what I just talked about. It may have nothing to do with what I talked about. That's okay too. If you need prayer, we want to pray for you. So in just a few minutes, after I pray, we stand. And when we stand, as you stand up, you just real quickly step out. I believe God's already identified who needs prayer here this morning if you just step out begin making your way down to the front prayer partners here people be walking with you we'd love to have the opportunity to pray for you Father we thank you for today we just thank you that you you are with us in the desert and Father we just ask that you administer to us now and that we would minister to each other and that we'd pray for one another we'd encourage one another we'd support one another we'd comfort one another and Father may people walk out different than the way they came in. May they leave their burdens here as they walk out. So Father, we just look forward to see what you're going to do for we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.